Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for the reading of the February edition of the Crestone Eagle. My name is Paula Vaughn. We're going to start with breaking news from the Crestone Eagle website. Town of Center schedules Town Hall to discuss code changes. The Town of Center will be updating its codes in an effort to address community housing needs. The Town will host a Town Hall meeting next week, or actually this week, to address citizen comments and questions. Keith Brockhurst, the Town's Economic Development Coordinator, issued this summary of the code changes. The meeting will be at Center Town Hall, 294 South Worth Street. What's the purpose of making these updates? The primary objective is to update our codes to help us address our community's housing needs and foster sustainable development for our community by supporting the development of additional housing units for local residents and simplifying our codes to increase transparency for everyone in our community. Want to learn more about these proposed updates and why we are recommending them? Call or visit Town Hall and ask us about them. And join us at Town Hall on February 27th at 6.30 p.m. for a public hearing to ask questions, bring up your concerns, voice your support, or even just to listen. What are the Town Board and Planning Commission actually recommending? Check out this summary of the different updates. Allow Accessory Dwelling Units, ADUs. Allowing high-quality ADUs or granny suites in town gives more housing choices. Tiny homes allowed. Saying yes to tiny homes on small lots means more housing options without overcrowding. Rules for short-term rentals. Making rules for short-term rentals blends them in without stopping more housing, starting with three rentals allowed, one per owner. Flexible lot coverage. No more maximum lot coverage means building ADUs or duplexes is easier. Setbacks still control density. PUD Zone Addition. Allowing planned unit developments, PUDs with unique rules, can help enable positive development in undeveloped places like North 90. One simple residential zone. Combining the existing two residential zones into one makes things easier for everyone to understand. Clear zoning map. Adding a simple map makes it easy for people to know the rules for their area. New dimensional standards. Small changes in how far buildings are allowed to be from each other. Setbacks. Clear list of allowed uses. Making a simple list of what's allowed in each area helps people know what they can do. Easy to read size standards. Making a simple table for size rules helps residents and builders follow clear guidelines. More definitions. Adding new words to the rules helps everyone understand better and keeps things complete. Now turning to commentary in the February edition of the Crestone Eagle. This is written by Lars Skogen. Although residents of Crestone and the POA function as one connected community, technically we are not one community. The town of Crestone and the Baca Grand POA are two distinct entities that operate within their own self-interest. This creates problems with taxation, representation, and community cooperation. We would be stronger and more unified as one. The vision and the end goal would be for us all to live in a community with unity. How could this be achieved? Presently, the town of Crestone is limited in what it pre- in that it prevents Baca Grand residents from running for o- public office in town and excludes them from decision-making. 
Residents make up the bulk of our community, and the current arrangement prevents people who love this community from getting involved and serving in local government. Those who live in the Baca have no ability to participate in their own town, given that the POA is not technically a government. Residents of the Baca are also paying hundreds of thousands of dollars each year in sales tax revenue that's sent to the town of Crestone, and property taxes that have no way of coming back to the Baca Grand. The Colorado Department of Revenue has now acknowledged that Baca Grand residents are overpaying in sales tax and the town of Crestone is at risk of losing a large portion of its budget, which is used to pay for town staff and services. We are in a negative spiral, and no one wins in this scenario. Truth be told, we need each other. Many residents feel that they are locked into an arrangement that was formed long ago and is no longer relevant to how the community has developed. If we were to unify, we would all be given equal voice and representation. Unification would provide a far greater pool of talented people willing to participate in the political process, people who consider this to be their community and who have its best interests at heart. In unity, the taxes that are already going to the town of Crestone for online purchases will now rightfully serve the entire community, and property taxes going to Swatch County could be re- redistributed within the Baca Grand. What is the process for creating this community with unity? In the past, the town of Crestone has entertained the possibility of annexing the Baca Grand, but the problem with this strategy is that the town is not large enough to annex the Baca Grand all at once. The process would take a decade and provoke a lot of confusion and friction. The most streamlined way to unify would to would be to form a new town, the town of Baca Grand. If the town of Baca Grand were formed, then it would be able to annex the town of Crestone, as Crestone is small enough to be annexed all at once. If we could work together, with all sides participating willingly and harmoniously toward shared goals, then we would be well on our way to creating a community with unity. With the new town formed and the annexation complete, our community would constitute 60% of the entire county's population. As it stands, Sawatch County sees two entities, a tiny town and a POA, that it has no involvement in. With the formation of one unified town, that could all change. The larger, unified population would open up more availability for grants and resources that could serve our entire community. Given that the Baca Grande is not an official municipality, the POA has been placed in a position of governance that it wasn't designed for. With the formation of the town of Baca Grande and the annexation of Crestone, the POA would no longer be forced to function as a government and could step back into its intended role, maintaining roads and county the county can't access, overseeing building regulations, and ensuring upkeep of the greenbelts. With the formation of a new town and the annexation of Crestone, the two maintenance departments and fire departments could be merged, helping to provide better, more affordable services to the community. Is this really possible? To achieve this goal, there would be there would need to be discussions, agreements, and concessions from all parties involved. We would need representatives from all sides, residents and leaders within Crestone and the Baca. These representatives would need to be in good standing within their entity and the community at large and would need to be willing to cooperate. Open dialogue and flexibility would be imperative. If we are able to see a clear path forward, the next step would be to ask the state to create a ballot initiative for the formation of the town of Baca Grande and the annexation of Crestone.
A majority vote by an informed community would be the final voice. In my 16 years living in this community, there have been several attempts to change the current, outdated situation. It's clear that there is a desire for change. I believe that forming a new town that could annex the town of Crestone would achieve lasting, meaningful change for all involved. Now changing topics to food. Nourishing the Valley, the SLV's food system. This was written by Amel Warner. For over, one, uh, for over 10,000 years, the people of the San Luis Valley, SLV, have been sustained by the bounties of this land, hunting, foraging, and cultivating all they needed thanks to the fertile soil and abundant water. Agriculture in the valley continues to play a vital role in Colorado's economy, ranging from the mighty SLV potato to diverse crops and livestock, contributing nearly $490 million and standing as the region's largest private employer. Despite this rich agricultural heritage, modern times have created complex obstacles within the SLV food system. Barriers to local producers include the growing export model, monocropping, and the growth of large corporate farming. Residents are impacted by low income, geographic isolation, and limited market access, contributing to poor nutrition and above-average food insecurity rates. These challenges affect anyone who eats food, produces food, or distributes food. This topic is of great concern to the San Luis Valley Local Foods Coalition, SLV-LFC a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting a local and sustainable food system in the region. To better understand these challenges and create a plan to bolster local food systems, SLV-LFC initiated the Local Foods, Local Places program in 2016, focusing on promoting local food systems and community well-being in and around Alamosa. This led to an action plan in 2017, addressing goals such as integrating local foods into community development, prioritizing economic development, and enhancing food access and learning programs. SLVFC founding director Liza Marone reported that many of the action steps were highly successful for Alamosa, and the organization desired to update the plan and expand this work to other SLV counties. In 2022, the San Luis Valley Community Food and Agricultural Assessment, CFAA, was initiated, with Jay Sanders serving as CFAA coordinator. Marone stated, A secret to the success of the San Luis Valley Local Foods Coalition is that it uses the community voice to inform its work. Building on the success of the Alamosa-focused initiative, the CFAA dug deeper into the intricacies of the regional food and agricultural system. The assessment aimed to understand the system's impact on producers' viability and residents' health, economic opportunities, and soil health and water conservation, as well as assess access to quality and culturally appropriate food choices. It engaged organizational partners and leaders across the six counties, incorporating community input and expert guidance. The 2024 CFAA assessment report will inform the food and agricultural planning phase, which will create a plan to build the SLV food system in a way that works for producers and for families, said Marone, who recently retired as SLV LFC co-director. Max Gibson, who has assumed the full SLV-LFC director position, said, 
We are working to ensure that SLV residents can get fresh, healthy food, that youth understand where their food comes from, and that family farmers, ranchers, and restaurateurs can grow their business. This community-led assessment and action planning brings people together to decide how we get there. The assessment identified five key focus areas. One, healthy food access. Two, viable opportunities for agricultural producers. Three, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Four, environmental health. And five, emergency food planning. These focus areas were explored through community surveys, farmer-rancher surveys, food business surveys, county food systems summits, and a photo voice component. The results highlighted the importance of promoting a thriving local food and farm economy, supporting youth agricultural programs, and addressing water challenges critical to farmers, the need for equitable access to food and land, soil and water conservation, and emergency food planning also emerged as crucial aspects requiring attention. The assessment uncovered disparities within the food system, emphasizing the challenges faced by residents in accessing farm and ranch lands and healthy and culturally relevant foods. Diversity is increasing in the region, with a call for addressing systemic disparities, improving education, and fostering inclusivity while maintaining the cultural traditions of the region. Environmental concerns were evident, with the community expressing worries about increasing water scarcity and climate change impacting agriculture. Despite challenges, there is a growing interest in environmental solutions, such as renewable energy, soil health, and water smart practices. Food access emerged as a significant concern, with high rates of food insecurity, limited local outlets, and challenges related to cost and transportation. The community aspires to be more food sovereign, desiring access to food system infrastructure like compost facilities, community gardens, and greenhouses, as well as education on growing, preserving, and preparing their own food. Reflecting on emergency food planning, the COVID-19 pandemic exposed vulnerabilities in the food system. Residents expressed a need for better communication about available support programs and a focus on local food infrastructure for increased resilience. Participants expressed gratitude for local farmers, businesses, and organizations like the SLV LFC, La Puente, and farmers markets. The role of these organizations in developing the local food system was acknowledged and appreciated. Looking ahead, SLV LFC plans to utilize the assessment data to launch the Community Food and Agricultural Action Planning Phase. This engagement process will involve community members in crafting actionable goals and recommendations around the five focus areas to strengthen the SLV's food system. SLV LFC intends to merge the existing Local Foods, Local Places action plan with the new plan, extending its reach to cover the entire SLV. This comprehensive plan will serve as a roadmap, guiding the region toward a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable food system. To learn more about the SLV Community Food and Agricultural Assessment, visit the website www.slvlocalfoods.org slash CFAA. If you want to become involved with future surveys, summits, and photo voice opportunities, contact Jay Sanders at jae.slvlocalfoods at gmail.com.
Since we're on the topic of food, let's turn to the Garden Guru column written by Maddie Bellakish. Starting right with fruit trees. Climate is a huge factor when considering the growing of fruit, especially the tree fruits. Although the San Luis Valley is not known for its orchards like the Delta and Hotchkiss area, it is feasible to grow many types of fruit trees in the Crestone area. However, our altitude, at 8,000 feet, presents a challenge, as the low winter and nighttime temperatures can seriously affect what type of fruits one can grow, and also the varieties that will succeed. Two of the major challenges to consider when deciding what trees to plant, can the tree survive our cold winters, and will the tree delay blooming until the frosts are over? Crestone has a mini-climate that allows fruit trees to succeed better than in some other areas of the valley. Being on an eastern slope is part of that advantage. The slope is important because it allows the cold air to sink down into the center of the valley rather than stay up here with the trees. The eastern part means that the sun doesn't warm our area as rapidly as it would a south or western slope, and that keeps fruit trees from blooming as early in the spring as they would in other locations. Late blooming is important because at our altitude we have a very thin atmosphere to hold in heat at night. This means that we usually have many warm days in the spring that encourage blossoms, followed by below freezing nights all the way through May and sometimes into June. An early blooming tree will often have its blossoms frozen before the spring is really underway. This freezing and thawing can also damage the tree itself as sensitive fruit trees will send sap into the branches early that will freeze and cause the branches to die off. Apple trees are the most abundant fruit in our area because many varieties will meet those two criteria. There is a wide variety of cold hardy apples to choose from and most of them are fairly late blooming. A couple of years ago I looked down at the town from a higher road and was thrilled by the sight of pinkish white apple blossoms almost covering the landscape. The blooms vary from year to year but that year was amazing. I am pleased, too, that most of our town trees bear edible fruit and are not just ornamental crab apples, which are great for pollinating other apples, but not usually great for fresh eating. When the oldest, tree in Crestone were, oldest trees in Crestone were planted, many in the late 1800s, not only standard size trees were available. Nowadays, one can choose from standard, which sometimes achieve 25 feet in height, semi-dwarf, which are usually around 12 to 15 feet tall, and dwarf, which top out at about 6 to 10 feet. Dwarf trees start bearing fruit a few years earlier than the others. A newer type, which is especially good for tight spaces, is columnar trees. When selecting apples, as well as all other fruits, I look for those trees that are hardy to climate zone 3, if possible. There are many apple varieties that meet this criteria, including some of the older trees you'll see around town, such as Macintosh, Harrelson, and Gravenstein. However, as our climate warms, I am considering some zone 4 apple trees, of which there are numerous varieties, both classics and newer introductions. A decade ago, I bought a State Fair and a Honeycrisp, both apples hardy to Zone 3. The State Fair is not a storage apple, but is great for applesauce and early eating. The Honeycrisp will keep a long time, but ripens late. As it turns out, I get more from the State Fair tree because by the time the Honeycrisp is ripe, the bears are out in full force. Bears, deer, squirrels, and almost all other critters love apples. Who can blame them? Pollination is a consideration with apple trees. If you live close to other apple trees or crab apples, those trees will likely pollinate your tree. However, apples are not self-pollinating, and you will need another apple that blooms at the same time to produce fruit. I bought a red crab apple, a recent introduction called a firecracker crab apple, 
as a pollinator. It makes a nice it makes nice little red apples about an inch in diameter that make beautiful jelly and are my grandson's favorite for fresh eating. I keep it pruned to, into a small shape as crab apple trees are usually quite large and can take over a small orchard. I also have a columnar apple tree, a scarlet sentinel, which I got from young seed and plants about four years ago. It bloomed the second year and has produced several apples for the last two years. I like that it fits into a small space as it grows up but not out. Dwarf trees are good for small yards. They are not quite as hardy as their larger cousins but are easier to prune and to pick. Speaking of pruning, February is a good time to prune fruit trees. Pruning is another entire topic but here are the basics. When planting young trees, cut off any dead branches or dead roots before you plant. Otherwise, leave it until next year. If pruning older trees, first cut off any dead branches. Then look for clusters of branches that are too close together and thin them out. If you want to keep a tree small, select three or four main branches and cut them back to the desired length. Each of these will send out numerous side branches, which you will want to thin to two or three each. Most trees bear fruit on last year's wood, so don't cut it all off or you won't have any harvest. Colorado State University Extension has some good online material on pruning. Pears are similar to apples in terms of culture. A key difference is that they are not usually as hardy. Only in recent years, with global warming, could one consider planting pears in the SLV, which is why there are few mature trees in the area. There is one on the courthouse lawn and a few others in Swatch, but only young ones in a few gardens in Crestone. If I had more space, I would definitely plant a couple now. Pears, like apples, require a pollinator. I would plant varieties that are listed as hardy to Zone 4 or possibly Zone 5 if they're planted in a protected area. Fruit trees of all types require moderately fertile soil. That means you will probably need to dig a fairly large hole, two or three feet in diameter, and mix in compost about half and half with the native sandy soil to a depth of two or more feet. I would add some ironite and some bone meal to the soil as well. I would not add lime as our soil is already alkaline and lime would make it more so. Mix this all together then put it back in the hole. When you're ready to plant your tree, arrange a hole in the middle large enough to spread the roots out and fill in around them with your soil mix, adding water bit by bit as you fill it in. Put the tree in so that it is planted at the same level in the soil as it was at the nursery. Most trees are grafted and if you plant it too deeply you may cover up the graft. You'll need to water consistently and deeply throughout the season. The easiest way to handle this, long term, is a soaker hose spread out around the tree's trunk and out to the drip line. This is another topic. For the short run, you can water with a hose or a bucket. You'll want to water deeply so the roots don't dry out about once or twice a week for the first year or two. If you live in an area with lots of wind, provide a windbreak. A few bales of straw stacked up on the windward side can help a lot. Next month we'll talk more about siding your orchard and we'll also discuss planting and caring for stone fruits. These include peaches, apricots, plums, and cherries. Stay tuned. In music news, CPI creates Band in a Hat to benefit its music education. Multiple musicians forming multiple bands for a myriad of music. This is the vision of the Crestone Performances, Inc. leader Lydia Sprouts. This is the nonprofit's big fundraiser event for the year, and organizers are asking the community for support. Funds raised will go to all aspects of our music education program, a new venture for our organization. Crestone's... Uh, 
Band in the Hat competition art auction will provide an opportunity to support local musicians as they compete in randomly selected bands for a slot to perform at the Crestone Music Festival. March 9th will be at the T Road Brewing Company and the bands will compete for a chance to play at the Crestone Music Festival May 26th. The art exhibition will be sold through a silent auction that evening. Visit the website www.crestoneperformances.org for more information. At the March 9th event, audience gets to vote for a favorite band by donating to the tip jars and raising money for music education in our community. For more information, contact hello at crestoneperformances.org. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us for the Crestone Eagle. My name is Paula Vaughn. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.